Money FM 89.3, the best of the breakfast huddle. International News Review. Welcome back to the show, our international news review uh, today. Joining us, we are so excited to have two amazing women with us, Angela Mancini, partner at Control Risks, and Dr. Serena Rahman, a lecturer at the Department of Southeast Asian Studies at NUS. Ladies, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Serena. Morning. Oh, there you go. Everybody's on. Oh, the Everybody technology works. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. You could detect the slight apprehension every time Ben and I are hitting <laughs> buttons this morning. It is just two old Ugmalls doing it this morning. So for those of you joining us, uh, we have got a lot to talk about. Let's get right to it. And uh, the first thing I'd like to, to discuss is, uh, is a, an area of your expertise, Serena, which is Malaysia. And I know you're joining us today from Jakarta, but uh, take us through the past week post-election of Anwar Ibrahim in Malaysia. How's, how's his coalition looking? How's he doing? What's his, what's his first week report card look like from your perspective? I think um, it was a bit of a relief, I suppose, for it to be confirmed it was Anwar because we were all left wondering for a few days after the election. So I think for many people when he was... Um, announced and then confirmed to have been appointed when he, you know, shook hands with the, with the Agong. I think we all just sort of breathed out a sigh of relief and many of us crashed. Um, <laughs> Isn't so, that funny the way we're getting that way with elections these days? When things go as they should, we're also relieved. Yes. <laughs> yes, as we hope they should. Uh, because in Malaysia, anything can happen in a few hours. Yeah. So even though there's an announcement, you don't know until it's sworn in. And then given the history over the last three years, even when he's sworn in, everybody's expecting everything to go wrong. Right. So um, <laughs> it's another round of relief to hear the cabinet has come out. Um, yeah. And, you know, even that was uh, full of apprehension because you don't know who's going to be picked and what's going to happen or if the government might fall before the cabinet is announced. And now we just wait for the attacks because, it, you know, there's, there's always going to be some kind of complaints left, right and center. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently on um, Twitter... And, of course, by birthday, they're really not happy that Zahid is deputy PM. Mm. Um, I think East Malaysia has a good block within uh, the, the parliament, so they're quite satisfied. Um, but it just happened last night, right? So late last night. So the reactions are only just coming out. Mm. And, and Serena, just to add to that point, you mentioned there Ahmad Zahid has come in as deputy prime minister. Not an entirely popular pick in some circles because there are outstanding graft charges related to the new deputy prime minister. You could argue only in Malaysia. But he's got so many coalitions to try to pacify here. Mm. He himself has made himself finance minister, which has already raised a red flag for some people still a little concerned after the 1MDB scandal that the Prime Minister has his hands on the purse, yeah. as it were. Yeah. How is this coalition going to hold together as it moves forward, Serena? To be honest, nobody knows. And I think um, for people who are uh, living in Malaysia and at the mercy of these developments, I think there is this thing haunting us in the background um, to say that, you know, this this could collapse tomorrow. So we're just kind of hoping that it that it hangs on um, and that those people who, who could possibly do another Sheraton move or a Tropicana move or we don't know which hotel they'll pick this time will not do it. 
Um, so Prikatan has actually come out to say that they're not going to try and take over the government. They'll just be the opposition. So hopefully they stick to that. But as I said, you know, in Malaysia, over two, three hours, things can flip. Um, so we don't know. So about him, Anwar being the finance minister, this is something that seems to be a habit among Malaysian PR, uh, PMs. So Mahathir did that, Patla did that, and of course Najib did that. So we're still reeling from the effects of 1MDB. Hmm. But I guess to his credit, Anwar was finance minister under Mahathir. So that sort of gives him the credibility to do that. And I think because Malaysia is in quite dire straits, um, he can only trust himself to mm. get it done right. He's got Rafizi as economics, um, and he's got uh, he's moved Uncle Zafrul to Miti. Um, so I think he feels that for for the economic side of things, um, he's got a good handle on it. So you notice mm. that instead of the Ministry of Domestic uh, Domestic Trade and Consumer Affairs, now it's Domestic Trade and Cost of Living. Ah. So that's his way of emphasizing to the people um, that he's. this is his big focus. Of course, right? inflation is uh, a, a very big uh, challenge uh, happening across Malaysia. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Serena Rahman, the lecturer at the Department of Southeast Asian Studies at NUS, and Angela Mancini, a partner at Control Risks. Angela, we'll bring you in in just a moment. But uh, Serena, just one last question to you. Uh, or a comment and a question. Last week, uh, Neil and I were talking about the elections, and, and I noted that I'd spoken to several of my Malaysian friends in KL, and they had said to a person, this was the first election they had ever voted in. And these are people in their 40s and 50s. Uh, and they, it was the first time that they felt like maybe their voice, their vote would make a difference. Talk to us about the sort of the emotional element of what we've seen happen in the last few weeks in Malaysia. Do you get the same sense as, as what my friends were, were saying to me, that, that maybe there's a little bit of hope that things might be different? Yeah, I think initially there was like no hope, right? So after 2018, it was people were euphoric. We thought there was a whole change of government. It's a new way forward. Right. And then we had the last three years of chaos. Um, but something flipped uh, during the campaign period. And you could sense it um, just like three or four days before elections and suddenly people were like okay maybe there's a momentum maybe there's hope maybe we'll just give it one last shot it felt it felt like that right they're just gonna try it one more time and you know make sure that pn and pass doesn't get into power because i think that was the fear so Amongst the Malay population, especially the rural Malays, they voted against BN, ironically, um, because they did not like Zahid. And he was like the number one hmm. enemy at the time. Um, now he's become a bit of a thank goodness for Zahid because he's the one that brought Amno into this coalition and PN and PAS did not take over. Right. So for the rest of the population that was sort of opposition leaning, they would have you know, thrown the hat in to, to make this happen because they did not want... PNN pass to take over. The, the thing that made it a lot easier for people who never voted before is now we have automatic voter registration. Uh. So really all you need to do is go with your IC to the polling booth and vote. Whereas before you had to register and do all of these things. So it was a big hurdle. Yeah. So I think there was that. So amongst the youth, there was a flip to vote for Prikatan National because they didn't like BN. Yeah. And that's why you see this big swing. Nice. Um, but then you also had the last minute wave from those who would support PKR and um, PH. 
And that also sort of pushed it over. So there was actually several different momentums happening within the last few days. Pretty interesting to watch. Well, that's the youth angle. This is a question for both of you, really, starting with Angela. I was listening to a podcast this week between two prominent British politicians. And maybe it's forgotten, maybe it isn't, but Anwar Ibrahim has tremendous international standing. Uh, He is a figurehead, a Malaysian figurehead, in a way that nobody else is, with the possible exception of Mahathir, in the last 20 or 30 years. How do you think, Angela, that will play out both internationally and within the business communities? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things I'd say that you're exactly right. I was struck in the last you know, couple of days in the, with the international business community in Singapore, but also the, the clients that we're in touch with in the States and Europe. Everyone knows him, yeah. right? People remember him from the 90s. They know the story. He's quite respected as a technocrat. He's respected as being clean. I think that plays really well. And I think, you know, certainly, um, you know, Serena's walked through r- really well, I think, what the politics are domestically. But if you if you take a step back and you think internationally, you know, Malaysia's struggling with some economic issues internally. But it's not a great situation for global business right now, right, with global yeah. recession looming, global inflation issues. So I think, you know, if there's any chance for some stability here and maybe the coalition government's the price of that you have to pay to have some stability to really have him push through. And, I, and we think Kondorowski was he is the person to push through things like a 5G network, things like digital economy uh, legislation that makes sense, things like, um, you know, what's happening with education. I and mean, they've got great infrastructure. Anti-corruption is a huge issue. We had a client this week say, now that he's in power, does that mean our compliance teams can kind of relax a bit because it's not going to be so much pressure with, uh, you know, contracts involving the government? So, I mean, just to say, I think, you know, all eyes are really on Malaysia because, again, he's well known, but the but the... The market has been one for a long time where you say, we're investing in Vietnam, we're investing in Indonesia, why can't we get more into Malaysia? And there's been some specific reasons why, and maybe he'll really help address it. And just finally, what, you, he can stay in power. Yeah, what is your thought on that, Serena? Because he really is, with the exception of Mahat here, arguably Malaysia's most prominent politician on an international stage. Mm. Yeah, I think you can see that. So in the, in the first few days, right after he was announced and confirmed PM, Um, He did have international visits, right? So he met with the PM of Turkey. Um, Sultan Abu Nai came over. I mean, he was already planned to come over, but he already uh, met with Anwar. Um, He's also been dealing with the local politics, so he's met local royalty as well. Um, I think in Malaysia, while there is this big international approval, um, really our domestic issues sort of override everything else. So he has to appease the electorate, he has to appease the political parties, he has to appease the royal houses. And if he can't get that in order... It's very hard for him to deal with international parties as well. He does have this um, reputation of being clean and, and knowing what he's he's doing as a finance minister. So that's good for the business environment. And to be honest, Malaysia needs that for investments. But his reputation on the local scale might not be as glowing. So there will be others who have these doubts yeah. um, and others who are a little bit more critical on the types of interactions and agreements that he has with other countries. There's all kinds of accusations flying. Mm. Um, so to be honest, I think we can hope we can only hope for the best because we've been through such a mess for the last three years. Mm. I think we all just want some kind of stability, calm. The ringgit is improving against uh, Singapore dollar, which is not good 
for people like me who work there. But, you know, <laughs> if that can help our economy improve, then, then all the better. Yeah, as you say, it's been a long time in the wilderness. So we will certainly hope the best for not only the government, but the economy and the people uh, who, of course, are the ones that always either benefit or suffer uh, based on what's been happening on the bigger geopolitical stage. Um, Serena, we're going to leave you for now and, and that topic, and we got to move on to some other topics. But but thanks for coming on this morning, Dr. Serena Rahman, lecturer, Department Thank of Southeast Asian Studies at NUS. We look forward to having you on again in the future. Thanks. Take care, guys. Thanks, Bye. Serena. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fascinating stuff. It really uh, was fascinating mm. stuff. Lots happening here. Okay, Angela Mancini, partner control risk. Let's move on. Uh, we've got the uh, the French uh, President Macron going to the U.S. The first France has become the first major Western uh, state to power to publicly back the creation of a special tribunal to try Russian officials, potentially including Vladimir Putin. Now he's in the U.S. talking about this uh, kind of lockstep and lining up with U.S. interests on this. Uh, what, what more do we know? So I would add, so a couple of things there. I mean, first, as we know, the backdrop is, you know, his visit to the States. It's the first time Biden's hosted a very glamorous state dinner. We had a couple of days ago, there's other reasons for the visits, primarily shoring up U.S.-French relations as it relates to, you know, cross-border uh, alliance and subsidies for American, uh, you know, products in things like EV that really got the France and the EU upset because it boxes them out. So there's a, there's a number of, of kind of reasons to visit besides talking about Ukraine, but Ukraine obviously was a big piece of it, right? So yeah. I think what's interesting here is, you know, Biden and Macron came out with a joint statement saying, you know, we need to stand, you know, for Ukraine and stand against war aggression and whatnot. But it's, but it's Macron that has said, I will speak with Putin you know, Biden hasn't said that. He said he'll only do that in conjunction with NATO allies. But at the same time that, that Macron's saying that, he's saying, you know, I'm going to support the, the formation of a tribunal. So a couple interesting points there I think we need to watch for. You know, number one, that's quite something to say to Vladimir Putin. You know, let's have a tribunal. And also, I would like to talk to you in the coming days. Yeah. So clearly the reaction from, from Putin has been, you know, he was quote unquote outraged, uh, was the statement out of the Kremlin. But the other thing is, if you take a step back and think about what would a tribunal, how would that work, right? So in, if you look at all these other situations in the past, you've had a situation where a country's been defeated and a body's been able to hold a tribunal, or you've had a civil war where one side has lost and all parties have agreed that there would be a tribunal process. And at the same time, we have to say you know, it would have to apply right to all parties involved in the conflict. So if there has been there's been reports of maybe foreign fighters that have entered Ukraine on the Ukrainian side, mm. you know, maybe haven't um, acted above board. And there's been some issues there, as we've seen recently in the press. Would that encompass everyone? I probably would have to and not just target Russia. So, you know, I'm definitely not saying it's not um, very important to hold Russia to account. But I think it's a more complex issue just out of the gate than saying, let's have a tribunal. And the last thing I'd say on it is, Everyone's been saying, you know, do we or do we not want to make Putin feel like he's getting back more into a corner? You can have a conversation about mm. that. But this certainly does do that. Right. I mean, if you've got we already know the cards were dealt with that personality and, the, you know, yeah. the potential threats he feels and what he's doing. This just adds more pressure to that. So it's a little bit of interesting yeah. timing to make, be making these comments. Well, that, that's the thing, isn't it? We, just to step back the political context. Firstly, if the EU wants a specialized court, how much teeth does it have? Because Russia, of course, has not signed the International yeah. Criminal Court yeah. Treaty. Right. So if there are dealings in The Hague, uh, there is no jurisdiction specifically over Russia on this because they're not a signatory. Is it, but more broadly, Angela, I think, do you think this announcement is 
prominent because it's the first real indicator that the West mm. has become completely disillusioned with Putin. He's not going to come to the negotiation table. They've all waited and hoped and waited and hoped. But this maybe feels like the first step towards, you know what, this is not ending anytime soon. We need to take initiative here. What are your thoughts on that, Angela? Yeah, well, I, th- I think, uh, well, there's a couple things there. First, from the, from the Russia side, one could definitely make an argument that why would Putin make any, I mean, there's a military issue here, which is obviously, you know, he's not winning. And we hear reports that maybe even around Zaporizhia, there might be some kind of retreat similar to Harrison. I don't know, but we're seeing maybe potentially something like that. So we know militarily it's not going well, right? But also, if you were sitting in, you know, Vladimir's, Vladimir Putin's shoes, you would be thinking, who's going to take power? Who's going to be sitting in the White House in January 2025? Because that makes a really big difference, I would reckon, to how this might go for him over the long term. Then, you know, so it's, so can you kind of wait out this period and see how things are going to go in the States because the pressure on him might diminish significantly if we had, you know, some other president in the White House besides Joe Biden, right? Yeah. And so I think to your point, probably, yes, the, the U.S. and Europe are saying, you know, this isn't going well and we've got to move the ball along. But I would just say, you know, as we, as we know in diplomacy, usually back channels tend to work better than mm-hmm. putting, and we see this also with China, than putting things really out in the open and then people have face and they're faced with these pressures They've got to deal with things externally. I'm not saying we shouldn't hold Russia to account. Obviously, I think there should be, you know, we should be doing everything we can to stop the conflict. But I don't know that this announcement is this the most effective way to be trying to achieve these things. Again, pr- primarily because I don't know how you would do the logistics around something like that effectively. Yeah. yeah. And again, you're just adding more pressure to it. We got we had a couple couple more topics to discuss, uh, um, Angela. But I'd, I'd like to get a, a quick comment from you. From an overall business perspective and a risk perspective, are you seeing your clients now just completely separating themselves from anything Russian or in Russia? I, I know the I know we've had the sanction regimes in place now for months uh, since February or March, um, but but is Russia just a non-entity in corporate in the corporate thinking these days? Yeah. So people, uh, clients of ours, for the most part either left Russia or wound down Russia or sold Russia to local partners in early days. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they folded it into their APNEA, the you know, kind of Asia-Pacific uh, Middle East entities as well. You know, in some cases, clients say their India business is now running the Russia business, but in most cases, they've hived it off. It's not in any corporate planning. Obviously, everyone's really, really across the sanctions issue, which is complicated because every time something changes, you have to relook at your supply chain. And a lot of times clients have you know, partners that don't just manage Russia for them, but they do all of Eastern Europe. And so now if you can't work that person, you've got to backfill all of your uh-huh. Eastern, Europe, Eastern European support as well, which is critical. But yeah, I don't think anyone's looking at Russia for um, you know, potential business opportunities and, and, and they have kind of wound that down. But I think that the, the bigger issue there is inflation. It's the extent that the Russia-Ukraine conflict impacts energy, which impacts inflation, which is impacting literally everybody. Clients mm-hmm. are doing all business planning now and budget planning based on the fact that they're expecting really hard energy, you know, high prices and inflation that's going to potentially get stuck into wages and everything else on a more permanent basis. That's the question everyone's looking at right now. Yeah. Just, just briefly on that, Angela, if you don't mind. I'm curious to know what the thoughts are within the Russian business community, both within Singapore and the, and the region. Is there a disillusionment there? I mean, it's a very awkward position for them to be in, I know. But what is the, the sort of feedback you're getting from them? 
So I think there's a combination there. I, th- I think, you know, if you're a domestic, so the domestic media in Russia is, uh, they're not getting all the same international media that mm. we would be getting, right? So there is, a, you know, both from a business point of view and a citizen point of view, there is a, a bias in the opinion based on the fact that the media that they're not, they're getting is not entirely, you know, the full picture, right? Number one. But number two, if you look at, there was a great graph that went around uh, a couple of days ago. If I, can, I can't remember who, who put it out, but talking about the um, number of uh, expats that have left certain markets in the last and gone into other markets in the last, you know, few months and Russia tops the list. So there, I think there's been a lot of business person flight into the Middle East primarily, but also into other places, including in and around Asia. So short answer is it's a bit of a mixed view. I think there's not a lot of people talking about it publicly because there's really a downside to that and there's not a lot of upside. But I think that um, there there is a lot of um, pain that Russian business is also experiencing if there's any kind of international connection, which there there's a fair amount of that. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. A- Angela, let's move on uh, to our last topic today. New U.S. House leadership. Nancy Pelosi and her crew are out. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries was unanimously elected on Wednesday as the Democratic Party's top leader in the U.S. House of Representatives. That'll be starting in January. Of course, the Republicans will control the House, so he will be uh, not in control of the House, but uh, in control of the Democratic caucus. Uh, this makes him the first uh, African-American to hold such a high-ranking position in Congress. And the fellow Democrats are calling this the next generation of leaders in the 435-member House. Uh, how does this uh, how does this play out? Nancy Pelosi is going to stay on as emeritus uh, leader, uh, so she's not out of the picture entirely. But it, it certainly signals a big shift, especially with that unanimous vote by the Democrats, does it not? Yeah, I think it does. And frankly, I think it's great. It's a to me, it's a definitive turning of the page. You know, one can have a lot of wonderful things to say about Nancy Pelosi and the team around her. They were in their 80s, right? High 70s, low 80s. This team is in their early 50s. And that is, you know, a 30-year age gap. And I think... It's the right message, the right time for that. It's the right message. I mean, listen, you know, and we see this also, you know, with... We just were talking about Alan Nasutian and kind of the change there. There is, you know, an, an age generational issue there. And don't forget, we saw, you remember with the, uh, with the recent election in the States, the first Gen Z... House rep out of Florida. He's 25 years old. Wow. So this is kind of, as we know, it's going in one direction. But to me, I think it was great that it was unanimous. And I think it really speaks to the ability now of the Democratic Party to, number one, deepen their bench for people to come after Hakeem Jeffries and also the Hakeem Jeffries of the world to go up, but then also to actually deal with real world issues in a more um, perhaps um, I don't want to say in a competent way, but, but in a, contemporary, a different way, with say. contemporary thinking. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. We're talking yeah. about, you know, are we, how are we regulating big tech? What's happening with regulation over time of the metaverse? Yep. Uh, you know, what's happening with climate change, green technologies. I mean, the lawmakers we've had in the States have been at an age where that's kind of, you know, science fiction to some extent. So I think people that have kind of grown up more with those issues are more across those issues are closer to childbearing age, <laughs> closer to working family, making, you know, making the rent and stuff kind of demographic, I think it's great. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, anything we can do, frankly, on, on both sides of, of both parties to kind of deepen that bench uh, of competence and leaders coming up is is terrific. Nice. Wonderful. I, I mean, I know Glenn hasn't got to it. I want to ask her briefly about this last story. I oh, got sure. To, I got to ask okay, you. Okay, let's do it. Um, and- the, the, your thoughts this week, Angela, on a... Co- uh, 
A press conference that has gone viral for all the wrong reasons. Two young female leaders, the New Zealand Prime Minister, of course, Jacinda Ardern, met with her Finnish counterpart, Sana Marine, and was basically asked the dumbest, stupidest, most sexist question I have heard in some time. What are your thoughts on that? So I think, sadly, it's not the stupidest question I've heard. Like, <laughs> there's kind of there's it's kind a very low bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, can I yeah, just get, let remember? me let me just give the question. Yeah. Let me just read the question yeah, out. Yeah. Uh, uh, the question comes from this guy, Joey Dwyer from News Talk ZB. Says uh, it all. State, station, radio station, um, which uh, apparently I've, I've heard some quite derogatory remarks about that particular station, but I'll leave that aside because I don't know it personally. Uh, anyway, his question was to Jacinda Ardern, uh, quote, a lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because you are similar in age and, you know, got a lot of common stuff there? A lot of common stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, one can, you know, insinuate what he meant by that, which, yeah, is that's pretty unbelievable. You know, shoes and handbags and things like that, right? Not running running states. (laughs) What sex in the city at weekends. But what I take from that is the very interesting counterpoint because, you know, Emmanuel Macron, who's 44, just met with Joe Biden, who's 80, and we didn't see a peep. I mean, I looked. I didn't really see anything in the press talking about that. You see the photos. You see them walking like the Kennedy brothers down that hallway right outside the you know Oval Office. And they're, you know, obviously Joe Biden could be his father uh, and then some and and not a peep on the age difference. So I do think that um, to me, that's yeah, to me, that's striking. Um, you know, we did see comments around age, you know, with obviously JFK was a, you know, young when he took office with Barack Obama in 2008. But to kind of lump them together, it's yeah, it's that's yeah, that's frustrating. But again, Catherine Clark, who just took on as right, the number two in the House for the Democrats, NPR did a piece on her earlier this week talking about why she let her hair go gray. And uh, and she said she actually wrote an essay on it because of the vitriol she was getting from her constituents on that decision. So it just, you know, it's it's really frustrating, but um, but indeed still that still exists. Here we are, huh? Yeah, here, here we, we are. are. In fairness, Glenn does give me a hard time about my gray hair every week. <laughs> but that's a whole other thing. But you never hear you know, you never hear him asking Barack Obama of course or you, don't. Of you know course you don't. or any leader, Joe Biden or even Donald well Donald Trump did get actually quite a bit of uh, flack about his hair color colors. Uh, but, but it's orange. <laughs> generally speaking, uh, yeah, people are not yeah. asking those same questions to at all men in politics, uh, which brings up that yeah. sexism charge. So I, I wish they would have asked her about I wish they would have asked Yacinda Sir more about her um Great experience handling COVID, right? Yeah, handling some and her. Uh, we don't have time. Her response was extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have time to go into her response, but please, uh, yeah. those of you in in uh, Radio Land, if you're interested, Google it because yeah. her response is fantastic. It and, is, and not and a slap back, but in a, in such an intelligent way that it was amazing. She just listed off all the free trade agreements, yeah. all the deals that the two countries have had. It was <laughs> all the opportunity out there. Opportunity out there. It was an extraordinary yeah. Yeah. Uh, retort. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. Angela, we have to leave it there. Angela Mancini, partner at Control Risks. Always appreciate you. you being on with us, Angela. And I hope you have a great, great day, rest of the weekend. Okay, take care. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg. Or download our audio app, that's A-W-E-D-I-O, available on Google Play or the App Store.